0: Welcome to the AWP Podcast Series. This event was recorded at the 2017 AWP Conference in Washington, D.C. The recording features Brian Broder, Nicole Brown, Cornelius Edie, David Kirby, and Dorian Locks. You will now hear Brian Broder provide introduction.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Poetry, Craft, and Criticism panel discussion to Sing the Idea of All, Whitman in D.C., 1863 to 1873. I'm Brian Broder, and I'll serve as moderator. After I introduce the panelists and provide a thematic overview of this event, each poet will offer a brief presentation We'll then have a discussion about subtopics raised throughout the presentation, followed by an audience Q&A. And I will say, too, that Cornelius, unfortunately, may have to leave early, so you'll forgive him in advance uh, for, for that. As the event title suggests, this panel will consider the bard of democracy, focusing on the decade he spent in the federal district, during which time Whitman worked as civil servant comforter of dying Union soldiers, and witness to the political upheaval of the end of the Civil War, the assassination of Lincoln, and Reconstruction. During this period, Whitman published nearly 100 poems, including the sequences Drum Taps, Passage to India, Democratic Vistas, as well as the elegies for Lincoln, O Captain, My Captain, and When Lilacs Last in the Dooryard Bloomed. This panel will explore how this crucial historical moment influenced Whitman's life and work, and how this poet continues to shape our thinking about democracy, nationalism, race, sexuality, poetry, and poetics. But first, I'd like to introduce our panel of poets, proceeding in alphabetical order, which will be the order of presentations. Nicole Brown, immediately to my right, is the author of Fanny Says a collection of poems, and Sister, a verse novel. Currently, she lives in Asheville, North Carolina with her wife, the poet Jessica Jacobs. Brown teaches as part of the UNCA's Great Smokies writing program each fall and will be on faculty at the Suwannee School of Letters MFA program this summer. Cornelius Eady, immediately to my left, has published eight volumes of poetry, among them, The Gathering of My Name, nominated for a Pulitzer, and Brutal Imagination, a National Book Award finalist. Hard-headed weather, new and selected poems appeared in 2008. Edie has been a teacher for more than 20 years and is now a professor at Notre Dame University. David Kirby, on on my right, is the author of more than two dozen volumes of criticism, essays, children's literature, pedagogy, and poetry. The House on Boulevard Street, New and Selected Poems, was a finalist for the National Book Award and winner of the Florida Book Award and the Southern Independent Booksellers Alliance Award. Since 1969, he has taught at Florida State University. He lives in Tallahassee, Florida, with his wife, the poet Barbara Hamby. Dorian Locks's fifth collection of poetry, The Book of Men, was awarded the Patterson Prize. Her fourth book, Facts About the Moon, won the Oregon Book Award and was shortlisted for the Lenore Marshall Poetry Prize. I'm sorry, Dorian is the last person. <laughs> yeah, right. so, sorry, sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Locks teaches poetry in the uh, in the program in creative writing at North Carolina State University and is a founding faculty member of Pacific University's low-residency MFA program. Before we begin, I'd like to hear from Whitman himself. Here is the final section of The Wound Dresser, one of the poet's most unflinching and most tender poems of the Civil War. Thus, in silence, in dreams, projections, returning, resuming, I thread my way through the hospitals. The hurt and wounded I pacify with soothing hand. I sit by the restless all the dark night. Some are so young. Some suffer so much. I recall the experience sweet and sad. Many a soldier's loving arms about this neck have crossed and rested. Many a soldier's kiss dwells on these bearded lips. Please welcome Nicole Brown.
2: Hello. I just want to share something with you. My my good friend Melissa just gave this to me. It's a Walt Whitman Centennial Celebration published by Beloit Poetry Journal back in 1954. Um, if y'all want to come up and just touch it. It was only 75 <laughs> cents, and I love that Langston Hughes is in here. Charles Olson, I recognize. And I love the continuity of that and the fact that that journal has been around so long um, It's really beautiful. Um, So I'd like to uh, read what I have written because I get a little nervous, so I thought, you know, just um, rather than just talking. So um, here we go. The meanest kind of bawling and blowing office holders, pimps, malignants, conspirators, murderers, fancy men, spaniels well-trained to carry and fetch, terrorists, male riflers, slave catchers, pushers of slavery, creatures of the president, creatures of the would-be presidents, compromisers, sponges, duelists, carriers of concealed weapons the lousy combings and born freedom sellers of the earth. Does this sound familiar (laughs) to you? This isn't from this morning's news, but is only a fraction of a very long list. Walt Whitman's description of the government in the years 1840 to 1860, during the two decades before Lincoln even took office when the seeds of the Civil War began to germinate, back when Whitman says the United States was convulsing, that the war in the temper of society preceding it can best be described by that very word, convulsiveness. I imagine I'm not the only one here who senses this country in a very similar predicament now who sees the aura of a seizure coming on, who in panic grabs for a wallet to cram into the mouth before the world blurs. Whitman wrote about this time as a topmost warning and shame, he says, as the most significant warning and beacon light to coming generations. So, My question to you is this. Can you hear Whitman's warning? And if you agree that our democracy is beginning to convulse just as it did some 175 years ago, what do we do with our frustrations and what do we do with our shame? And even so, what does it matter if there's nothing we can do Or worse, as Jane Hirschfeld wrote in a poem, let them not say they did nothing. We did not enough. I admit I don't know the answers. But to try and find a way, I've spent nearly every day since the election combing remnants Whitman left behind. Not just his classic leaves of grass, but particularly his specimen days. Today, I want to briefly share some of what I found. And to make it easy, I've made a list of ten, but I only share four of those with you today. This is a list of reminders, if you will, or bits of wisdom brought back from the dead. Or, if you're a pragmatist like me, call this a description of your job as a writer in this new regime. So, here we go. Number one, realize your uselessness. Admit your uselessness. And, well, make yourself useful anyhow. Certainly Whitman saw the war coming and he didn't just express his concerns in poetry either for years he worked as a reporter and editor and lost more than one job as a newspaper at a newspaper over his fierce opinions but it did nothing to stop what was to come regardless this didn't mean he turned away Quite the contrary, he saw himself as a witness, a noticer, a collector of all around him, as a mouthpiece from which many could speak, and as such to be placed in tumult was a kind of blessing, or as he called it, the most profound lesson of his life. But observation and writing on its own wasn't enough At the height of the war, when the wounded arrived into this very city at the rate of nearly a thousand per day, and many either fled D.C. or grew callous, he went directly to the camps and hospitals where the soldiers were. And while Whitman's time spent volunteering at war hospitals is well known, what I didn't realize until reading about his time there was how little he thought he was doing those three years. He wrote, I do not see that I do much good to these wounded and dying, but I cannot leave them. Indeed, what he had to give those boys was small. Sweet crackers, green tea, pocket change, some tobacco, almanacs from 1964, ice cream treats. He wrote letters for boys who could not do so themselves. He brought DSG in bed 52, some whorehound candy for his weak throat. For CHL in bed 6, some oranges and tart jelly for his easily nauseated stomach, for J.H.G. in bed 24, an undershirt, drawers, and socks as the boy had not changed his clothes in a long time. This, to me, is not just a call not to look away, but to do whatever Pragmatic and concrete kindnesses that can be done during these times, no matter how small. Two, talk to everyone, and I mean everyone, even those you pity or even those you despise. Long before the war, Whitman had a passion for fairies, for those streaming, never-failing, living poems. In the omnibuses, he would ride them for hours and knew the drivers by name, like Broadway Jack, Balky Bill, Old Elephant, Pop Rice, Big Frank, and Yellow Joe. I just love even those names. There's a much longer list of them, of course, because it is Whitman. (laughs) Later, during the war, it should come as no surprise that he stopped to talk to everyone. The nurses and the illiterate farmers' sons, the deserters, the severely wounded, some half out of their minds spewing delirium. And yes, he lent his ear even to the rebel soldiers who, as the war went on, Whitman had more than one reason to despise, especially as news spread of how the South kept their prisoners of war, Union prisoners held not in cells but in holes in the ground, half full of water fed only scarce meals of corn with the cob and husk ground together. These soldiers returned home, pitiable, and Whitman saw them unable to stand, often with not enough flesh on the lips to cover their teeth. Yet still, when Whitman was administering to a young soldier in the hospital, and the boy said to him, I hardly think you know who I am. I don't wish to impose on you. I'm a rebel soldier. Whitman replied by saying, It made no difference. He wrote, I can say that in my ministerings I comprehended all, whoever came my way, northern or southern, and slighted none. And in another entry, he wrote, The dead The dead, the dead, our dead, our south, our north, ours, all, 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 finally dear to me. Few of us could deny how divided our country feels even now. But certainly, if Whitman could see past the differences in his time, surely we could try to listen to others, no matter how deplorable they might seem. Or, as I hear Martin Luther King Jr. used to joke, we need to love the hell out of each other. Three, Go outside. That's right. We should all get off our damn computers, put on our walking shoes, and go outside. Because Whitman's writing about this time wasn't all soldiers and politics. In fact, nature was what he said made him who he was and what healed him after the war. From the time Whitman was a child, he spent his days in the weather. And some of his earliest, earliest remembrances were of filling baskets with what he called a bonanza of eels pulled from the ice, of collecting gull eggs, of the vigorous black walnut trees that he imagined stood even before 1776. Should you consider this a waste of time? Think again. Shortly after the Civil War, Whitman witnessed a flock of birds passing through the darkness overhead in the middle of the night. Immense flocks migrated its velvety rustle for hours, so big as to last from midnight until three in the morning. Now, Who here has ever witnessed a flock of birds that large, especially up here? My guess is no one has because they don't exist anymore. Ironically, even back then, already, Whitman himself was mourning the diminishment of nature, such as the Thoroughly rural character of Brooklyn. Asking, even then, who remembers the old places as they were? Who remembers the old citizens of that time? So, my question then is this if we aren't outside paying attention not only to what is, but what is no longer there, how Will we bear witness to our world? How will we protect it? By the way, should you think Whitman would be a denier of climate change? <laughs> know how he believed in science. How he called science the arms that lifted him first and braced him best. That in the beauty of poems are henceforth the tuft and final applause of science. Even more compelling is how he saw democracy dependent on, upon humankind's relationship with nature. He said, democracy most of all affiliates with the open air, is sane only with nature. He wrote, American democracy must be fibered and vitalized by regular contact with outdoor light and air and growths, or it will certainly dwindle and pale. He wrote, nature brings people back from their persistent strains and sickly abstractions to the divine, original concrete. Four. Finally, I want you to write something down In your notebooks, on your arms, your legs, across your chest and neck and on your wall Here, Whitman makes it easy and speaks directly to us The American poets of the future He writes, this is what you should do Love the earth and sun and the animals. Despise riches. Give alms to everyone that asks. Stand up for the stupid and crazy. Devote your income and labor to others. Hate tyrants. Argue not concerning God. Have patience and indulgence towards the people, take off your hat to nothing known or unknown, to any man or number of men. Go freely with powerful, uneducated persons and with the young and with the mothers of families. Reexamine all you have been told in your own soul and your very flesh shall be a great Thank
0: you. Okay, as I'm turning on my media, I'd like to correct one part of the introduction to me. Um, I am no longer at Notre Dame. I am, for the last, past seven years, been teaching at the University of Missouri. And, and usually that doesn't bother me um, at all, and I don't want to bring this to, to Brian's, you know, I'm not trying to embarrass, but, but now we live in a world of alternative facts. <laughs> and I'd hate to have that. <laughs> So okay, <laughs> right? I mean, so so now we're in a world of alternative facts, and I just thought we'd we better just be clear about what's, what's what we do these days. Um, I'm going to um, start my part of the conversation um, by um, also uh, sort of uh, you're going to, I think, this afternoon here. Um, a lot of similarities between where Whitman is—I uh, mean, you know, then and where we are now. Um, I, I just think that we're at this point where the um, the parallels are kind of unmistakable. Um, <sighs> Whitman was dealing with. The Civil War. And what is the Civil War? It's a it's a conflict between the states, um, and part of that conflict has to do with my ancestors and yours. History is something that we all live within, right? It is a bubble that contains us, and we move through, or move along with, I should say. So many of the arguments that Whitman had to deal with, or where they were dealing with pre-Civil War and during the Civil War, are some of the same arguments we're hearing today. In fact, yesterday, you had to hear um, you know, the latest round of this argument when President, the President lost his, his, uh, his, at least so for the moment, lost his argument. Uh, to ban Muslims from coming into this country even if they had a green card his argument is that he has the power to protect us well they were trying to you know, the southern states were trying to protect themselves or, or to, to, uh, to preserve their right to have my ancestors live as chattel it's as simple as that that's the great tradition they were fighting for. So the great tradition that, that Trump seems to, to, to invent here, this crisis that doesn't exist, is for the ability to inflict state harm upon one particular group of people. And the similarities are, 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 are remarkable. Now, well, for Whitman, I'm going to read the little, the beginning of Drum Taps. Aroused and angry, I thought to beat the alarm, and urge relentless war, but soon my fingers failed me, my face drooped, and I resigned myself to sit by the wounded and soothe them, or silently watch the dead. The, the, the remarkable thing about Whitman and this uh, this period of his of his of his life, and what I think the introduction sort of illustrates for me, uh, is that you see this transformation within the poet, um, the, the the brash um, you know uh, poet. Um, who is cosmic and you know embracing everything and trying to to, to um, embrace the energy of this of this of this uh, you know, of this country at that time? has um, is, is now deflated and become um, much more somber, and the transformation of Whitman during this time is really one of the most remarkable transformations of any writer, I believe, in the 19th century. Because suddenly he stops being cosmic and becomes very minute. Not only that, but I think one of the remarkable things about these poems is that suddenly you have a poet that's touching another human being. That is literally reaching out and holding and touching and soothing another Wounded human being. And the poems take this shift. That's no place else in Whitman. You know, he's a tactile poet. He does, you know, he says, you know, he, he encompasses everything. But this is a different kind of touch. A different kind of exploration. And it slows him down. And it changes the nature of his line. And you actually feel the ache through the lines of the shock of hearing or feeling another person will die in your arms, or having to watch the agony the last few minutes of a young uh, soldier, the fear, how he takes that, makes that into, and transfers that into, into a form that we actually feel. Whitman doesn't do this any other time in his, in his career and those And those three years are the most remarkable for me uh, um, part of, of of his of his writings he 's actually literally holding in verse another human being and the and the tenderness there and the rage about what 's going on around him and the this, this, this desire to do something um is something that we 're all feeling right now, I believe. And the question you might want to ask, the fourth the fifth question you might want to ask is, what are you going to do with your body? What are we going to do with our bodies in this time? Who are we going to touch and how are we going to touch them? Even knowing if we can't stop it. What are we going to do with our bodies? That's what reading, rereading that period of time from Whitman brought up to me um, these last few weeks. He was able to throw himself into that breach, every fiber of his being. So, um, that is um, uh, um, that is, I think, the revelation for me, and I, and I think for us, the lesson that we need to carry forward ourselves. We may not solve this, but we can't let it go unnoticed, and we can't let it go untouched. We can't pretend that we're not seeing what we're seeing or feeling what we're feeling. And we have to figure a way to actually, as artists, make that connection. Now, I don't have the answer to that, but I know I do know that's the path some of us have to walk on. And, I, and again, I think the inspiration for me comes from Whitman during this period of the Civil War, all that turmoil, um, you know, him trying to figure that way that, that, that way through. Um, I'm going to read the close. I wasn't going to be long here. Um, I'm going to read a poem of mine that has Whitman in it. And the reason I'm going to read it is not be- is because it, it it was the beginning of another period of time, another war. This was just before the Iraq War. And um, the first Iraq War, I should say. <laughs> you know. Um, I hope it. Yeah, it loads. Yes. So it, it was. It was dealing with that feeling of what happens next, and and, and also it, it, it deals with it deals with loss, and the the loss here is is it was it was friends. Now it's poets, um, and I'm thinking particularly of Tom Lux, who just died recently. Um, a very, very dear man. I mean, we weren't very, very close friends, but Tom did a lot for my career. Um, he, there, there are so many, are so many um, poets whose stories will begin, um, suddenly Tom appeared and said, <laughs> suddenly Tom called me up and then, <laughs> that's the sort of person and poet he was. And, um, and so all this loss is also touching this, and, and Whitman as well, and the poem is it's the title poem for Hard-Headed Weather. The leaves wave off their stems as I drive my small red car under this grumpy November sky towards our house upstate. Fingers of bare branch, an argument between the wind and any object the wind decides to push. Pelt of sleet, the hard-headed weather, a limbed landscape nudged towards sleep. A year has passed since you died and you died and you. A world absent of all of you all visits at the edge of war in this adventure. Friends, who'd guess I'd own doors your hands won't open Floors never to carry your tread. Against the rolled-up glass, a seedy drums a folk song about dying. I think of Whitman in the Civil War, how he cradled the wounded at the Army Field Hospitals. Long, long, I gazed, he wrote, high and lonesome as a cat-gut fiddle. His polite notion of death now... A kid's thready pulse. Even his kiss can't repair. I feel my breath verse. This old throat croak chorus. I feel the push and pull of Gus. That buffet the car frame. Almost a sail. Nearly a kite. That tug before you rise,
3: Brian. Thank you for for uh, convening this session, for bringing us all together, and thank you all for for uh, coming out, everybody, including uh, I just noticed the handsomest man. In the Metro D.C. area, Willis Barnstone. Yes. Uh, right, yes. Willis. Yeah. Yay. Willis and I were. In the, see. Yeah. yeah. Willis. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Willis and I were in the same uh, high school class with Walt Whitman, actually.
4: <laughs>
3: Willis. Willis played quarterback, and uh, I was third string something. I can't remember. But, uh, I. Uh, I, f- I find it's often uh, best to approach uh, poets of the monumentality of Whitman through their family. Uh, you think of somebody like, like um, Emily Dickinson, who's such an enigma, or Keats with all of his achievements. When you look at Dickinson in terms of uh, you know her brother and mm-hmm. and all those uh, people in that sort of uh, hot pot of Amherst, Massachusetts in those days, or Keats and his brothers, uh, you know you can you can find an angle where you you might go in. So. Uh, I looked uh, to prepare for today through, uh, among other sources, the most useful one was a book by a guy named Robert Roper called Now the Drum of War. And uh, Roper begins, and this this brief presentation will begin and end with um, a uh, glimpse of George Whitman, who was, who was Walt's brother and who was actually in the Army and was very badly wounded. And uh, at, at one point he... Uh, wrote uh, a letter not telling his family what he was doing but fantasizing what they were doing and he says I'll bet now that mother is making pies Matt is putting up shirt bosoms by the deuce Sis is downstairs helping mother mix the dough Walt is upstairs writing Jeff is down at the office Jess is peeling potatoes for dinner and Tobias is gone down cellar for a scuttle of coal. So you see everybody's doing something useful, except this one guy who's <laughs> upstairs <laughs> writing poem. But, um, you know, and, and the, 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 uh, the best part of, of uh, Whitman that we often don't see are the, are the letters that he wrote and the letters that he got. But then isn't a poem like a letter, uh, you know, in, in the sense that it, it does many things. A good letter Consoles it, impresses it. Uh, you know, it reports it, it beseeches. What are you doing? And there, you know, there are all sorts of levels of, of rhetoric. And you know, we rare we rarely uh, write them or receive them anymore. But that just makes them all the more precious. Uh, Whitman wrote his mother, uh, you, "You have no idea how letters from home cheer one up in camp," which reminded me of something you're all familiar with, which is Frank O'Hara's idea of the poem as a phone call. Uh, In his famous statement on personism, he said he was having lunch with Leroy Jones, and he went back to work, and he started writing a poem. And he said, while I was writing it, I was realizing that if I wanted to, I could use the telephone instead of writing the poem. And so personism was born. It's a very exciting movement, which will undoubtedly have lots of adherents. Uh, And it did. Uh, And it it also kind of existed long before Frank O'Hara did, but at least he gave the name to it, because uh, everybody in this room knows that a poem has to do two things. It has to arise from something so intensely personal as to be trivial in nature, yet be expanded until it becomes cosmic and universal, and that's Walt Whitman, Uh, the uh, Roper, uh, in this book, uh, Now the Drum of War, says, um, Elements of Whitman's story give rise to a sense almost of clairvoyance. And we've heard that a little bit from Nicole and Cornelius already. Just as if, just as great poets are supposed to be, he had seen deep into his nation's soul his sense of an impending cataclysm leading him to become a healer. You know, right now I'm teaching a, a, a class for... Uh, it's an interdisciplinary honors seminar for sophomores, uh, none of whom are English majors. They're all mechanical engineering majors and, and uh, psychology majors and business majors. But it's, it's a course in public intellectuals, and uh, you know you have to plan these things well in advance. And so we're, we're reading Machiavelli and uh, Voltaire's Candide and, and Thoreau. And so the other day a student said, uh, said you know, how did you know all this? How did you How did you know that you know we were going to be where we were in 2017? And reading Machiavelli's The Prince, and I said I didn't because I planned the, you know I planned the course two years ago. I said, but that's just the way literature works. You know, you write it and it just kind of sits there and it waits, and then you know when, when uh, the time comes, it turns out to be prophetic. So uh, he was he was uh, prophetic. He was clairvoyant. Well before the Civil War, he was writing about uh, you know bloody wounds and the terrible things. That would happen, but he was an ordinary guy. Nicole has already quoted some of these uh, some of these things that he has promised to bring people. He kept very detailed records. He kept, you know, kind of shopping. Just as his poems are laundry lists of, of great uh, images, so the, he had these images of things that he needed to bring uh, the fellas. Uh, one of them was um, oh gosh, got in here somewhere. Oh yeah, one of the young uh, fellows was quite crotchety. One lad in bed 23, he had his heart set on a pair of suspenders. I gave him 30 cents, and the next time I came, I took him a pair of suspenders. So uh, Whitman served as a nurse to these wounded soldiers, giving them a, I and mean, that was back when 30 cents was 30 cents, right? You know, it's a pretty pretty good deal for the the lad in bed 23. And the, the uh, they didn't know who he was because you can't, Get up there and thump your chest and say, you know, look at me, I'm world's greatest poet. You just have to do the do, which he did, he did the do. Uh, and the uh, I, I read one account of the, this is no surprise. He looked like Santa Claus, right, big beard, and he had, and he had a sack of stuff with licorice and uh, <laughs> suspenders and things like that. And uh, the most touching thing is one of the. Uh, it said that when he left, the boys would say would say, come back, Walt, not meaning come back right now, but, you know, tomorrow or in a week, you know, come back, please, you know, like, and they were boys, weren't they? They were 17, 18 years old, you know, they, were, they weren't They were that far from their, their mother's uh, apron strings. So, um, the uh, you know, the, the, the poems have those two essential qualities that I, I, I think and I hope and I pray that everybody in this... Room who writes the stuff and reads the stuff, looks for and tries to to bring to life, which is which is the, the, the small thing, the the trivial thing, the intensely uh, personal thing, and yet the, the thing that becomes because of our sleight of hand and leisure domain becomes becomes universal and becomes transcendent, and in that way touches people because among the many other senses that he invokes, uh, Whitman in, invokes the sense of of, t- of touch, of, of actual touch. And I want to come back to George again. George um, survived because a particular doctor took a liking to him. Um, the doctor, who was named Wilson, uh, blistered him and gave him mercury. And we all know that mercury is not exactly the, one of the top three <laughs> cures these days. And uh, I, I think blistering might be on the way back, probably, you know, along with uh, phrenology and some of those other uh, things that I think ought to, ought to be uh, on the menu. But uh, uh, the, 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 the point was he was blistered and he was dosed by a, a doctor who wanted to lay hands on him at a time when there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these young men here. There, were, there was something about about uh, George that drew the doctor uh, back uh, which doesn't make him a good literary critic Um, this is what George Whitman said about leaves of grass I was about 25 when it first appeared I saw the book I didn't read it at all didn't think it worth reading fingered it a little mother thought as I did did not know what to make of it I remember Mother comparing Hiawatha to Walt, and the one saying to us pretty much the same muddle as the other. (laughs) Uh, Mother said that if Hiawatha was poetry, perhaps Walt was too. Um, Like uh, like Nicole, also, I want to say that uh, I I brought something to show. When I was a young man, I had a lot more money uh, than I have now, and then I got married and raised a family and and became... uh, uh, as you see me now, impoverished and uh, happy. Uh, but uh, back then, I, I, I didn't want to just take my, you know, the pennies that I had and put them into the Coke and potato chip diet. So whenever I got a, uh, a payment for a reading or one of those $12 royalty checks that we get every year, uh, I, I saved it up, and I, uh, I always tried to buy a book with it. And uh, so back then, I bought a copy of uh, Drum Taps, uh, and it's signed by Whitman, and I brought it. And if you want, if you want to look at it, later, you can't borrow it. <laughs> uh, and and uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll be happy to show it to you. Thank you very much.
4: This has been delightful for me. I've been having a great time, and I've been wishing that it would just go on forever. Um, Because I didn't get the memo, and um, I didn't realize we were talking about Whitman's political poetry, or his, you know, the Civil War, or, you know, I just thought it was about Whitman. (laughs) There's this great movie um, called King of Hearts. Has anyone seen King of Hearts? And there's this moment where this guy dresses up in this outfit, this, you know, complete crazy garb, walks into a party, and everybody's just sitting around in their ordinary clothes. And he says, I thought it was a costume ball, (laughs) you know, and that's sort of how I feel. (laughs) And um, so not only do I have nothing um, that concerns this particular subject matter, but um, also I'm veering away from some of the very things that uh, brought me to Whitman in the first place, which was his love of the body, his love of the world, his love of the specific, um, the object, um, the variety of people and animals and flora and fauna. You know, all of that is why I originally fell in love with Whitman, but especially the human. And um, <coughs> And as I get older, I find there are are other things that um, are starting to affect me now. And that's sort of what I just wrote a very brief piece about. And so I'll just go ahead and read it and imagine that it's filled with political intent. Um, I once visited Whitman's self-designed and self-built tomb in Harley Cemetery in New Jersey. I broke off a few frozen sprigs with the leaves still hanging on, wrapped them in my scarf, and flew back with them to the West Coast. They were placed in a vase on my writing desk for years, and I looked at them each time I sat down to write. I may have parted with one or two of them, giving them to students I thought needed a talisman. I don't know what happened to them when we moved to the South, but it doesn't matter. Like his poems, they lived on in my memory, vivid and distinct. I was recently reading... um, Um, Sullen Fires Across the Atlantic, Essays on Transatlantic Romanticism. And this woman, Sarah Ferguson Wagstaff from Harvard, was talking about points of contact between Blake and Whitman. And when I saw Whitman's grave, um, at the time, it didn't um, hit me like it did as I began reading her. She said, on September 29th, 1890, Whitman enclosed a rough sketch of his tomb in a letter to his literary executor, Richard Maurice Buck. An outline of a house with a door is surrounded by design specifications. Walt Whitman's burial vault on a sloping wooded hill, gray granite, uh, unornamental, surroundings, trees, turf, sky, a hill, everything crude and natural. Whitman based the design which I did not know at the time, on William Blake's engraving of Death's Door, which he encountered in 1881 when he read Alexander Gilchrist's Life of William Blake. Death's Door, an, in Death's Door, an old bearded man hunched over a crutch steps inside the open doorway of a square stone structure. The wind blows at the old man's back, rippling his garment and his beard. Just inside the door is a rolled mat on a raised surface. As this dying physical body enters death's door, a vibrant young man, surrounded by rays of light, crouches on top of the stone structure, representing the life of the soul. Aside from all this fascinating background, which I did not know at the time, I was impressed that Whitman's tomb included the roof structure so that it actually resembled a home. I kept thinking of Edna St. Vincent Millay's last line in her poem, Assault, where she is walking um, through uh, the forest next to these very loud frogs on her way from one house to another. It seemed to me that Whitman thought of death as simply a final move. Without possessions, from one house here on earth to another that would house the soul through eternity. When we read down into the opening of Song of Myself, we are struck by the poem's sense of timelessness, the vastness of the universe Whitman describes. Have you reckoned a thousand acres much? Have you reckoned the earth much? Have you practiced so long to learn to read? Have you felt so proud to get at the meaning of poems? Stop this day and night with me, and you shall possess the origin of all poems. You shall possess the good of the earth and sun. There are millions of suns left. You shall no longer take things at second or third hand, nor look through the eyes of the dead, nor feed on the specters in books. You shall not look through my eyes either, nor take things from me. You shall listen to all sides and filter them from yourself. I have heard what the talkers were talking, the talk of the beginning and the end. But I do not talk of the beginning or the end. There was never any more inception than there is now, nor any more youth or age than there is now and will never be any more perfection than there is now, nor any more heaven or hell than there is now. This is what Whitman shares with Blake, the mystical knowledge that eternity is close at hand, like the kingdom of heaven. It exists in the present moment in the tiniest grain of sand. There is no beginning or end to it. His language is plain spoken and simple. No grand symbols or metaphors. Everything stands for itself alone, exists on its own specific terms. It vibrates and glows differently from the poetry of Blake, yet both of them exist on the edge of the void, profoundly aware, backlit by eternity.
1: Thank you all so much. That was that was wonderful. Um, so, what I'd like to do now is, well, I guess I'll just ask a question and see uh, who on the panel would like to respond. And then, after we finish that discussion, I'd like to just because considering time, we don't have a whole lot. Uh, I'll just open it up, open it up to you all and uh, and take your questions for the for the panelists. So. Nicole, um, Nicole mentioned convuls- the word, that great word, convulsiveness, which Whitman used to describe the period preceding the Civil War as well as the war. Um, Whitman also saw this convulsiveness as somehow justifying his uh, his poetics, his line. Um, of course, he had been writing in this line for for decades uh, before before this, but. Uh, He did see it as as something of a justification. So my question is, do we see, now that we're, as Nicole pointed out, living in a period of uh, convulsiveness, if if you agree with that or not, um, do we see any echoes of this in terms of the way that uh, either you all are thinking about uh, making poems and making poems in terms of line in terms of poetics, uh, or, or the work of others who are writing right now about the kind of convulsive events of our time.
2: Is this where we all look at each other? It's like, who wants to? It, 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 I, I think it's, it's hard to say because it feels so new right um i mean it's not new but it, now it's news it's it's there um i know that 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 for me um since november it's scarcely all i can think of um and when when i was asked to be on this panel my first thought was i am no whitman expert i'm just an enthusiast i was one of those uh, barefooted hippie kids that that carried leaves of grass through the park. Um, But so I, you know, was studying him this fall and and looking so desperately not only into his life but into his lines. And one of the things I I thought was really interesting that um, Allen Ginsberg said that um, I found so interesting and, you know, that lineage between Whitman and Ginsberg... And then Ginsberg talked about these long lines of Whitman in that the, the the lines made room for everything. The lines made room for everybody. Um, and I don't know what that means for for my work or the work that's going to come from others, but I do feel like we need to find a way to make room for others in our work, and we need to find a way to turn our focus outwards and to listen and love really hard and of course it's going to affect the the form that those poems will take but um it's we're in a hard place now because my answer to almost everything is i don't know i don't know i don't know but i'm looking
3: I'm I'm kind of horrible about uh being ready to respond to the calls that people are getting these days to to write certain kinds of poems poems of resistance or poems of protest and when you get that call you you hope that you've already written that poem you know sometime before and you know you wrote it, you know 11 years ago and and it's just uh you know maybe you can give it a haircut or something <laughs> like that but uh you know as as I as I look back and see um some some of my sp- former students uh, gazing uh, balefully at me back there's there's Kim, there's uh, Seth and uh, Jen and uh, Dominique and Sarah and up here Kelsey and Landis and another. Jim, because I made them all keep bits journals, uh, which is I, I don't, I've never had any original ideas, and, and so the, the, the bits journal I stole from Whitman, who didn't have a, exactly that, but he had a kind of a coffer that was apparently of the the right size, and he would write on scraps of paper and chunk scraps of paper in there. And then when the coffer's lid, you know, when he couldn't, he had to sit on it to get it closed, and he would you know pull the pieces of paper out and and, and uh, tape them together and make and make poems. And so I, I think that's. You know that's what we do. We always have to be ready. You know we always have to have our, our coffers uh, in the process of being stuffed and and emptied, and uh, and we all we always have to have our bits journals. Uh, y- you know just just going. I mean the uh, you know it's it's just you know action and motion should should always be there. We shouldn't wait for times of times of crisis. I read you know who Mario Andretti is the the race car uh, driver. I read recently he said. Um, if you if you have everything under control, you're not going fast enough. And so uh, I, I kind of feel that way as a poet too.
4: You know? Yeah, I, I also don't think you can you can um, write consciously, you know, about very easily. You know, um, sometimes it can happen, but most of the time, we're just writing our poems as Whitman was writing his poems, and um, and uh, I don't think any of us sits down to say I'm going to now change the world and things are going to be better after I write this poem. Um, uh, one of the, th- the things I'm thinking about in terms of this idea of being able to see Whitman in a new way um, as I age, which I didn't mention, but I, mean, I think as we get older, we see different things in poets and we need different things in them. And what's wonderful about Whitman is he offers you not only this vibrancy of life and um, uh, being a, an alive young man in the world, but also someone who is teaching us very wisely about um, the end of our lives, and that it really is uh, just a journey, and we're going to move through, just as we're going to move through this history that we're living in right now. Um, this is just one moment in many moments that we have lived in, you know, since there have been human beings on the planet, and um, and I think sometimes like you do, Nicole, you know, I'm, I'm so, right, I feel such a weight. And oddly enough, right, reading Whitman makes me that weight kind of come off of me because I remember, oh, that's right, this is just one moment in my life, and this is just one moment in our lives, or in our life as a country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We've been through so much as a country when you think about, you know, and then all the other countries and the planet, you know, and so that gives me hope somehow that this is momentary. It's going to change, like everything changes. And Whitman is the king of change, <laughs> you know, and how things um, will will find their way, like water, you know, to where, where um, we should be. And it doesn't mean, as um, David's saying, that we shouldn't be active and act and, you know, um, but that we should allow ourselves to... Um, Find it lifted from us for a while because then it's diff- more difficult to act if you feel so burdened, you know. Um, so read Whitman and he'll make you feel better. <laughs> and then go out and march. <laughs> Questions?
1: And remember to please uh, speak up if you do have a question because we're recording this. Yeah, Willis. Ha <laughs> Uh, Willis Barnstone's wonderful comment, which I cannot uh, even summarize, I think, but, uh, but maybe I can get a question out of it, uh, if, if, if you don't mind. Um, the, his comment was concerning Borges and Neruda and how both poets were uh, influenced very heavily by, by Whitman, um, I guess. And so, so we, we should also keep in mind, of course, that this conversation extends beyond the United States uh, and indeed into the world. So I guess my question to follow up on that comment would be: What other poets are we turning to during these uncertain times?
3: Actually, uh, there, there, there was one thing, Willis and, and Brian, that I just thought of when you were talking. Is that Neruda said Whitman taught me to be an American. Uh, you know, which is. The simplest, and the best thing you could possibly say. Uh, lately, I've been reading a, t- a Palestinian poet named Taha Muhammad Ali. Do you know this guy? Uh, he's well worth reading. I actually started reading him. Um, I don't really read thematically. You know, I don't, I don't say and now I'm going to read food poems or political <laughs> poems or something. But, but uh, Taha Muhammad Ali was the guy who said poetry's like billiards—you strike here to hit there. And uh, that's, you know, and that, that goes back to the question about uh, you know, Should I, should I uh, not go to the dance tonight And go home and write political right. poems Well I'm going to write, yeah, I don't know I don't know what I'm going to do I'm going to write something maybe tonight or tomorrow you know, It's going to get written o- over time But uh, I'm going to be striking here to hit there And I uh, hope I hit in the right place yeah.
2: mm-hmm. um, Well first of all Willis you are the most handsome fella here just want to throw that out there um was a great comment um but the uh i haven't turned to any one poet uh whatsoever i have been looking at uh the things that you guys have been writing i when i open facebook in the morning i generally get a poem from rise up review it's the first poem that pops up on my feed there's a great poem by Bob Hickok not that long ago that, that came uh, through there. Uh, Sibling Rivalry Press has just put out an anthology. Um, uh, Cutthroat has put out an anthology. These are people who are now speaking out and um, speaking out in all sorts of ways, and, and, and that, I think, is what has comforted me most, is, is to... To hear from from my friends and to hear from my contemporaries, and just like that, that nudge of, of people speaking about about now, and that less a lonely feeling, I think that comes from it. But
4: mm-hmm. and you know, I'm I have so little time um, teaching two two teaching jobs um, uh, and my own work and. Um, and I, uh, I judge a lot of contests. So I'm being inundated all the time with poetry from young people. You know, um, poetry being written right now today in the consciousness of someone who is actually living. I mean, we're not really living as much through this time as young people are. You know, that it's really going to... in the way that our young lives were affected by the events that went on at that time. And... Um, And it gives me a lot of hope to read what these young people are writing, both my undergraduate students, my graduate students, my older graduate students are included as well. But um, there's a a new young poet, her name is Brienne Genet, and um, she uh, was the second place winner in the boat contest um, recently that I judged. And um, she's going back and uh, looking at her ancestors, digging each one of them up and finding out as much as she can about her black ancestry and then writing poems in the voices of each of those um, relatives in her life, you know. And um, it's political in so many different ways and yet it's completely personal. She just wants to know her, who her grandmother was. She just wants to know who her uncle, you know, her great-great-grandmother, her great-great... You know, she just wants to know these things. But out of this very personal search comes this huge political, right, um, book of poems. And so uh, that one really moved me this year. Um, My graduate students, uh, what they're writing moves me to tears to know that there's this new generation of poets who will be replacing us, you know, and that they're as fervent about it and alive in it as as we are and have been in our lives. So um, so that's who I've been turning to sort of out of um, default just because I don't have time much to do anything else. Um, and yet it's completely uh, sustaining me um, during this, this rough period in our history.
2: Um, Brian, can I break the rules and ask who you're turning to? I, I, you're
1: such a- I thought you'd never ask. <laughs>
2: um,
1: I don't really know. Uh, Wordsworth, actually, um, particularly his uh, the earlier the earlier poems. Uh, I just started rereading Hopkins too. I don't I don't know why. Last night I was I've been sort of under the weather, so I took a bath last night and I read read the wreck of the Deutschland. Um, so <laughs> the wreck of the <laughs> United States uh, <laughs> uh, yeah that's good
3: you know another thing too is is remember there's there's um, more fish in the sea than poetry uh, you know there's 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 music um, there are uh, things like well I mean when I say music you know I think you could take Ginsburg's America and you could take the Declaration of Independence, and you could put Little Richard's Tutti Frutti side by side, and there's not that much difference in them. You know, the, 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 the language is different, but, the, you know, the takeaway is the same. Lately, I've been reading Lewis and Clark's journals. Hmm. Those guys could not spell worth a lick. I mean, Clark has something like 28 variations on the word mosquitoes, like misquitors, and, and at one point, you know, their job was to go over and find the uh, Pacific Ocean and then find the waterway that connected that with the, the, the uh, then U.S., which didn't exist. But they found the ocean. And Clark says, says oh, we have found the ocean, O-C-I-A-N. He says, and the men, the men are delirious over this beautiful O-C-T-E-A-N. He couldn't even spell it the same wrong way. You know, in a, in a single sentence. But these guys, they were writing down America. You know, they were writing it. And, they, you know, of course, they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know they were opening up the West to uh, exploitation. But I thought of them when Nicole was talking about looking up and seeing a, a flock of birds. Because they would go up to the tops of the mountains and see they would see these massive herds of 3,000 bison crossing a river. And they would write it down and and... and you know, like third graders, you know, they would just get it wrong and misspell it and everything. But, it's, you know, it's there for us to read. And, and you know, that's, that's why I, I keep going back to that idea of, of always, you know, the poetry store is always open 24-7, you know, and, and the race car is always racing. You know, we're, we're, all, we're always moving. We're always moving forward. Don't, don't wait to write your poems of protest. Just write poems.
1: Question. I think we have a. We have five minutes. Yes. It's a wonderful comment, thank you. Uh, about the divisiveness of our time, uh, the, both right and left being equally uh, poisonous, maybe certainly to to each other uh, or toward each other. And so, Whitman allowing us to uh, at least recognize the importance of embracing the other side, and uh, and as Nicole pointed out, talking to everyone, not just those who agree with our particular political beliefs, whatever they may be.
2: And if I could, if you haven't read Strength to Love, uh, Martin Luther King, Jr., uh, it's, it's a collection of his sermons. It was if they were written last week. And they are, of course, I mean, just so profound and smart and helpful. And uh, also on the way up here, I was listening to an On Being podcast podcast with uh, the Congressman uh, John Lewis, um, and uh, he was talking to Krista Tippett about that time, and, uh, you know, he cried for an hour or so. Um, but smart, fierce love, I think, and, 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 and I understand what you're saying about that reactivity and how we need to be careful about that and, and how we need to love each other and how we need to listen and in turning back to those heroes to say like what can you teach me i think it's really important
1: Good. on that note thank you very much for coming and uh, enjoy the rest of your day and your conference thank you to our presenters
0: Thank you for listening to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts,
2: please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.